0: Together you may be with one voice glorify the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomes you for the glory of God. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do come into your presence today and we want to give thanks and and, uh, want to delight in you. And I do pray that you would... Give us instruction here this morning from your word that we would turn to it and, and uh, see how we need to encourage one another and build one another up and think of uh, others before we think of ourselves. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you remember the song uh, from your childhood and your childhood days, perhaps if you were in Sunday school, uh, but we used to sing this song, Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. And the end of the song, depending on the version that you sang, would either go put Jesus first and spell joy. Or it would say put yourself last and spell joy. Either way you spell joy, right? But the idea of putting ourselves last, us, you being the why in this uh, case for spelling joy. The idea of putting ourselves last and putting others before us is is just such a common theme in the scriptures uh, that Jesus should be first in our life. That others and thinking of others and even in some cases sacrificing others and building others up and loving others should be before taking care of ourselves and then of course put ourselves last. It's just this basic idea of don't be Selfish. Uh, We live, of course, in a world that tells us constantly and bombards us with the message of you need to put yourself first. Take a little time for yourself. Uh, Take care of yourself. Now, I'm not mocking the idea of taking care of yourself, and there are times where we legitimately need times of rest or we've been sacrificing so much we're on the verge of burning out and all of those things. But basically, we live in a culture that endorses selfishness. We live in a culture that says, me first. If you don't act me first, uh, who's going to take care of you? You'll just be run over by everyone. So the scriptures give us instruction on this. We are war- to work to please our neighbor in order... To build them up, work to please your neighbor in order to build them up. You'll notice that that we've been talking about this idea of sacrificing for others in terms of our own interests, in terms of not being judgmental. But if you go all the way back to chapter 13, verses nine and ten, we've had a discussion already in Romans on our neighbor and loving our neighbor. Romans 13, nine and ten. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and every other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. A slightly dis- different discussion, but you'll notice again, we, Paul has already talked about uh, the second greatest commandment in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. Notice also in our passage that the word please, not like may I please have something, but, but to please others is used uh, actually three times. And we live, as I've said already, in a world that says please yourself. Where the scriptures teach us if we have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. If he has done a work in us, we are not to live for ourselves, but to live for him. And in living for him, we seek to please others. We put the interests of others first. So our first point this morning is simply this. Our obligation is to our neighbor not ourselves. Our first obligation after being to Jesus is not to ourselves, but to our neighbor. So the strong brothers, we've been talking about this weaker brother, stronger brother. The strong brother has an obligation to the weaker brother. Look at verse one. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not please ourselves. This weaker brother, stronger brother theme is going all the way back into chapter 14 as we've been uh, walking through that chapter most recently. Verse 1. And to the one who is weak in faith, welcome him and do not quarrel over the, the opinions. So you'll see in verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This idea of here they are in this church. There were some from Jewish backgrounds, and so they had a, a very sensitive conscience when it came to, to eating food laws and, and certain things from the Old Testament versus some of these Gentiles who had, had more freedom of conscience. Uh, they were fine eating certain things. They were fine drinking a little bit of alcohol, all of these uh, types of things. And, and the idea here is we have to get along in the church. And so you have some that have this strong, robust conscience on Christian liberty. You have some that have this weaker, more sensitive conscience on what they can and cannot do. And Paul has been saying, in a sense, that's all OK, but we still have to work together in the life of the church. So he puts the obligation here on us who are stronger. If you think you have a stronger conscience, if you think you've been a Christian longer, if you think you're stronger in your faith, uh, whatever the situation might be, you, in particular, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. I once heard a marriage counselor, it was uh, on a video seminar, he was talking and he was saying, uh, I think it was on a video seminar, if not, it was a public one, whatever, a marriage counselor was saying in a public setting uh, about reconciling with your spouse, and, and his idea was well, who goes first? You know, when, when somebody's wronged the other person and, 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 you know, the person to look, you've wronged me, you need to apologize first. And then the other spouse goes, no, 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 you've wronged me. You need to go first in apologizing. And sometimes, you know, we maybe both need, we know, know we need to apologize, but nobody wants to go first because everybody wants to save face and everybody wants to kind of be like, well, you're the one that did the bigger thing, so you should go first. So what did this marriage counselor say? He said, well, and he said this kind of tongue in cheek, whichever amongst you thinks you're the most mature, you apologize first. The idea being is we tend to think, well, you know, I'm in the right. I'm the most I'm the mature one here. So you need to apologize to me. Well, his point was, if you think that way, then maybe you should take the first step. Now, uh, my wife snarkily said to me, no, 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 that's OK. You can be the most mature one. Um, it's probably the only time in our marriage I got accused of being the most mature one. Um, the point being, the stronger brother has the obligation, the stronger brother. And, and this isn't saying that the other people are less of Christians or, or something like that. But but the idea is if someone over here has a very sensitive spirit, a very sensitive con- conscience, maybe little things bother them and things that you look at, and you just go, Oh, this is ridiculous. They're they're always so easily bothered and offended and upset. The point is, you, who see yourself in that situation as the stronger one, you have an obligation to them. You don't just blow them off and say, well, whatever, they're overreacting about all these dumb things. They very might well be overreacting on some things. But that doesn't excuse you of your need to love them, to, to serve them, to to bear with their failings. They may be wrong in some things. They may be overreacting. But if you're the one who's not overreacting, how much more do you have the responsibility to work with them, to bear with their failings, to be patient, he says, and not to please ourselves. So, again, this is on these matters of, of Christian conscience. Romans 14, 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another brother. So one of the ways that we bear with the feelings of the weak is we don't put something in front of them that's going to make them stumble. If they have a very sensitive conscience over an issue where we have some some Christian liberty, you don't flaunt it in their face. Uh, let's just say, for example, that they're a vegetarian and they say, well, you know, I don't eat meat because I think animals are a gift from God and and I don't want to see animals die so that I can eat. Uh, You don't walk up to them with a whole bunch of meat in their mouth and and shake some spare ribs at them and say, hey, you want some meat? You respect that. Maybe they are a little weaker. Maybe it is a silly rule and maybe they are legalistic about it. at the same time, endure with them. Allow it. Be be patient with them. Go out of your way sometimes not to to offend them or, or to rub them the wrong way or intentionally be antagonistic for them. Work to please them before you work to please yourself. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. In all things, Paul is saying, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So one of the ways that we help with the weak is we give to them. We pour ourselves out to them. We invest in them. In that context, it's the idea of, of disciples and shepherds in the life of the church, raising up those who are yet weak in the faith. First Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Uh, this isn't about belittling. Uh, this isn't about a, a smug self-confidence. You know, well, I'm, I'm the strong brother and they're, they're the weak brother and they need to, to get with the program. This is about simply love and mercy and kindness and being gentle and, and generous. Notice also we're not to be the self-serving. We're not to please ourselves. So we have this example set for us in Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What a a tremendous picture we have in the body of Christ of peace and unity and how awesome it would be if we all actually lived according to these verses, that we thought of other people first, that we didn't look after our own interests, And if we belong to Jesus Christ, that is precisely what Jesus Christ has done in dying on the cross for us. He didn't look after his own interests on the cross. He was thinking of our interests. So we're told we're to please our neighbor in order to build them up. Look at verse two, if you will. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up now. This doesn't mean just, you know, give them whatever they want. Uh, This isn't just bending over backwards. And and certainly, you know, if something is wrong, uh, we don't say, well, you know, i got to please my neighbor, so I'm just going to let them do it. Like, you don't do this with your kids, right? You, You don't just say, well, you know, I'm their parent and I have to... To watch out what's best for them. And and so I got to please them. And and you just give them uh, whatever might make them happy. You understand uh, that that what they want needs to be constrained by what is good. So a kid comes up to you and says, hey, mom, can I eat tons of candy? You know, tons of candy will please your kid. You don't just say, hey, all right. Hey, candy, you know, because I got to please you. Uh, the, the what you do for them is constrained by this language of for his good. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Again, not sinful things here that we're indulging, but we have in mind their good. And so this does mean sacrificing on our part for their benefit. This doesn't mean like being puffed up and arrogant and being like, well, you know, I know what's for their good, so they, they need a little bit of tough love, and, and I'm just going to be really harsh with them. But rather it means that we're kind and we're gentle and we're caring so that in the hopes of moving them along. Maybe with someone who is sensitive, we're extra careful about not offending them, not stepping on some toes. But we also do it with the mindset of, You know, there is some things that they need to move along. They need to grow a little bit. They need to to not be easily offended. Now, the way you get someone from going to not being easily offended, uh, or excuse me, being easily offended to not being easily offended, you don't, like, offend them. You know, it's not like, well, you know, you need a little bit of scar tissue here so you you toughen up. Uh, The way that you get them to move from, from not, from being offended to not being offended is you Show them that you're trustworthy. You show them that you're not going to betray them. You, you, you show them that they don't need to easily take offense because they can be secure in who they are in Christ. And you are going to love them unconditionally. Uh, you, you do this, you know, you, you do this by modeling it. You do this by caring much like Jesus, you know, a, a bruised reed, he does not break a smoldering wick, he does not snuff out. Like Jesus didn't come to earth and just be like, all right, everybody, buck up. He was gentle and he moved us along. He was patient and he was caring. And so we have this uh, in the scriptures for us as well. So Paul also says in first Corinthians 10, he says, so whatever you eat, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greek or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, seeking, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So Paul says here specifically, like when I'm being evangelistic I go out of my way not to try to offend people. So he says, you know, to those under the law, he becomes as one under the law. He submits to the food laws when he's around Jewish people in the hopes of saving them so that they're not offended by what he's doing. But if they're going to be offended, they're offended by the cross of Christ. Likewise, if he's around Gentiles, he doesn't restrict himself to the Jewish food laws. Imagine how uncomfortable that would be like, oh, you think you're better than us because you keep these food laws. Well, I'm not interested in your Messiah. So because the food laws don't really matter in that sense, Paul is willing to give them up in that context. But notice also he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Paul will later go on and, and, and talk about sacrificing our rights to please others in terms of what do you do when, when you encounter meat sacrifice to idols. It's in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians 25 to 29. He says, look, if you're, you're eating something from the meat market, which meat markets typically would have been food sacrificed to idols, he says, look, just eat whatever you want without, he says, quote, without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. And then he quotes this verse. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But then he says this, if one is an unbeliever, invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. For the sake of the conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his this is a way of, if you will, pleasing your neighbor for his good. A non-Christian invites you over in that context and they put food before you and they're just, they are just—they don't tell you where the food comes and you probably go, yeah, he probably bought this in the meat market, which means it was probably sacrificed to idols. You can just go like, look, just eat it. It's meat. That idol isn't anything. We're not worshiping that idol. It's just meat. But then... If the person bringing the food says, oh, by the way, hey, this was sacrificed to an idol. With kind of the implication here, I think it's not just, hey, this is I got it from this meat market. But like, hey, you sitting here with me, you're giving thanks with me for this food, which we got from this idol. Paul says, don't eat it. He's like, your conscience doesn't need to be bothered. You know, it's just meat. and You know that meat's a gift from God. But here's an unbeliever, and they're asking you, in a sense, to partake of their sacrifice. Don't do it for the sake of their conscience, for what their conscience and their mind is thinking. This is, I think, a good rule of thumb when you think about pleasing your neighbor for their own good. I'll give you a more personal example. We've been in the past invited over to a friend's house, and they they, uh, aren't believers, and they are uh, Buddhist and they the the one fellow is, is a practicing Buddhist and so they have a, a Buddha in their in a uh, Buddha statue in their living room. Now, on the one hand, some of you in your conscience might say, "You know, I don't I don't know that I'd be comfortable going into that house." And, "Hey, that's that's fine. You know, if, if that's where your conscience leads you, then then don't." But we felt that they were neighbors and they were friends and and that, that we could love them and so we would go and we would eat and and uh, we would have a good time in their house and social events. Now, they never came to us and said, hey, like, let's give thanks to Buddha before we partake of this. Because then we would have said, you know, well, you know, we can't we can't do that. And maybe we even would have said, like, look, if you see this food as somehow partaking of this food is celebrating something Buddhist, then, yeah, we, we can't celebrate with you. But if you're just throwing a party, that that's fine. So how do you love your neighbor for their own good? The food was just food. But we're also thinking about what is going to make us have a Christian testimony. Sometimes we do need to go over and fellowship with our neighbors and eat with them. And you know what? Maybe they don't raise their kids the way that we want because they're not Christians. But we need to to get to know them in the hopes that they would become Christians. Maybe other times loving them for their own good means, you know what? You're involved in this practice or this behavior. You know, I, I do need to kind of pull back from that. I do need to have A little bit of a testimony here and not be uh, involved with you in, in doing this sort of thing. The point is this. In all things, Paul says, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Who are you thinking of as you make these decisions? Are you thinking of yourself? Are you thinking about, well, gee, you know, what would people at church say if, if they knew that I went here or befriended this person? Or are you thinking about the neighbor? How can I love them? How can I be a testimony to them? People inside the church, you know, how can I, how can I care for them in this time of hardship? You know, they, maybe they offend you in a really wrong way. And, and rather than, than taking offense, loving for their, their own good means you just overlook it. You don't let it bother you. You kind of let it be like water off a duck's back, if you will. Please not yourself, but work to please them. Second this morning, notice again the example of Christ. So Christ took upon himself an obligation for his neighbors. Christ thought of how to please others and not himself. And so Paul goes to Scripture to make this point. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This comes from Psalm 69, Uh, and this is a a psalm that's also being prophetic or fulfilled by Christ. For it was for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I became a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. So I think here what's going on in the original context is a person is standing up for the Lord, and and because people hate the Lord, then they also hate us. But I think what the implications here are with this this, uh, Christocentric application, if you will, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul is talking about how Christ stood for the church. The reproaches that people had for others, Christ was willing to partake of them. In other words, people hated who Jesus identified with, who Jesus came to save. And yet Jesus did it anyways. You might think of how this works in, in sort of a, a modern day setting, right? Someone is, is getting bullied and, and, you know, you're hanging out with the popular crowd at school. I know most of us in the room aren't in school anymore, uh, but just bear with me for the analogy, right? And so here's this person and they have the reproaches falling on them and people are sneering and jeering. And, uh, you know, maybe they're they're trying to play pranks on him and they're making fun of him or her at, at every occasion. And. And, you know, you finally decide, you know, this just isn't right. And so maybe instead of sitting at the cool kids table, you go over and sit with the person that's sitting alone. Or maybe when someone knocks them over and pushes them down or knocks their books over, you go over and you help them. And what do people do to you? They start making fun of you because they were making fun of that person. I think the idea here is that's exactly what Christ did. We were guilty of our sins. We were rightly reproached for our sins. But even you think about the people that Jesus associated with in his earthly life. He got accused of being a drunkard because of the parties that he went to. And Jesus never sinned and Jesus never got drunk. But he was hanging out, if you will, with the wrong crowd. the People that weren't elite. The people that weren't cool. Sinners. Tax collectors, which would currently be the equivalent of mob loan sharks, if you will. Prostitutes. Now, he was ministering to them, and he was they were seeing them get saved and all of those things. So he wasn't putting himself in a, in a compromising situation as, as we might think of it uh, today. At the same time, Jesus was mocked. And if you care for the people that need God's care the most, you are going to end up being mocked. And it's unfortunate, but oftentimes you will be mocked by people inside the church. How can you hang out with them? My goodness, if, if one of you ladies went up to a prostitute on the street and started sharing the gospel, like one, that would be totally awesome and, and props to you for doing that. But I think we know what kind of stigmas there would be. And hopefully it would be none of us, and we all like to think that it wouldn't be. But let's be honest for a minute and examine our own heart. There would be this element of, what are you doing talking to that person? We do it all the time. Sometimes it's not even the obvious people that we do it with, just the people in our neighborhoods. And Christians will say, I can't believe they're friends with that person. Now, there needs to be appropriate boundaries, right? There needs to be appropriate safeguards. You, someone that maybe isn't living for the Lord, uh, you've got to be careful that they don't influence you. If you're hanging out with your neighbors who are, who are unbelievers and, and let, let's just say they do some light drugs or something like that, you've know, you got to be careful when you're around them. Uh, You know, if if they throw a party and you know there's going to be smoking marijuana, uh, you probably don't want to show up at that party. But the point is this. Oftentimes we don't love our neighbors as we should. And it's true for those outside the church. And it's true, I think, often for those inside the church. We look down sometimes on Christians who are hurting, on Christians who are struggling, and we think it must be something wrong with their faith. Rather than coming alongside them and comforting them, rather than sacrificing uh, for them. We could continue uh, with other examples, but I, I think you get the point. Go back to Jesus, though. Mark 10:45, for the, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or again, Philippians chapter 2, where it's talking about not looking after our own interests. And then it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is something the believer should have by virtue of, of, of Christ has saved us and we are in Christ and he is working in us. And this is the fruit that he that He wants to see manifest in us. What did Jesus do? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant being in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross the point is this if the son of God could become so lowly and humiliated in his life in order to save us how much more can I risk being reproached and humiliated by others by humbling myself and thinking of other people first, by pleasing other people first? So Paul says in Romans fifteen four, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that th- through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, you might have hope. It, the scriptures here encourage us that this isn't futile. That this isn't wishful thinking. That this isn't some pie in the sky. Like, well, if I'm the only one that does this, what's going to happen? Nobody else wants to do this with me. The scriptures encourage us. They give us these examples. They give us instructions. You think about how uh, Elijah goes and he cares for the widow, and he and he, and, and and on multiple occasions he cares for. For women and women that have children and one child who dies. And there's another one where, you know, she doesn't have any bread in the house and she gives her last bit to him. And then the oil continues to last throughout the entire famine. The point being, you see over and over again how not only God takes care of these people, but God uses the servant of God to take care of these people. It's written for our instruction that through endurance, that through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope so Christ's work for us is also an example here to us if Jesus was singing Jesus and others and you i don't i don't he would have to spell it backwards right it would be like others you and then him because he he put himself Last is the point of Scripture. So he asked this question: Who in your life is that tough Christian brother or sister that you need to love? It's interesting here that in the passage the focus is primarily on inside the church. So it so it applies to those outside the church, right? Everyone in one sense or another is our neighbor. But Paul is particularly concerned that inside the church. We build one another up. We take care of one another. We're not pleasing ourselves, that we're looking out for each other. It's interesting, too, as well, how many times this idea of the church building each other up is used in Scripture. Now, in one sense, God builds the church, right? God causes the church to grow. God has put us into Christ God is forming us to be more like him. That's one way this idea of building up is used in scripture. Another primary way is how do believers act with each other? Do we build each other up? It's so much easier to say something negative, to tell someone they're doing it wrong, to say, look, I'm, I'm loving you, so I'm bringing correction to you than it is to say something to them that's encouraging. That's encouraging. That it is to say something to them that's going to build them up. That's going to get them to hang in there. That, that sometimes the way to help people come out of sins is to build them up. Because they're precisely struggling with those things because they've never not only been told the right way, but they've never been encouraged to persevere through the hardships of what are the right ways. It's interesting that so many times when people are caught in sin, there's some sort of weakness in there. There can be some sort of uh, insecurity. There can be some sort of uh, this has become a crutch for them. And I'm not saying we don't confront sin. We need to confront sin. But what I am saying is that Christians also need encouragement. They need to be fueled. They need they need kind of like a for those of you that have been in the military, kind of like a combat buddy you know how it is when you're, when you're working out or you're, you're doing your PT training or you're, you're rucking it or something and, and you're about to slip and you're about to fall and, and someone comes alongside you and they have a bunch of energy yet and they're like, come on, hang in there. We just got one more mile, you know, just 10 more miles. You can do it, you can do it. But just that energy of seeing someone else and you go, man, I, I, all right, I, I think I can do this. You know, just, just around the corner, here we go. just Just one more, hang in there for one more day so much easier to put more weight on someone than it is to lift the weight off them and lift it with them. Loving your neighbor first builds up the body in harmony. God wants unity and harmony in the church. So look at what he says in verse five. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. So. Uh, let's be frank. It does take incredible endurance sometimes, incredible patience, if you will, to get along with people, to live in harmony. And and for those of you that have been in the church, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's harder to get along with people in the church than it is to get along with those outside the church. But guess what? God has put us together. God has knitted us like family. It's just like in your family at home, right? Sometimes it, it's, it's so much easier to fight with your siblings, than it is to fight with your best friend down the street. But with your sibling, you have a, a connection of blood. With your brother and sister in Christ, you have a, a connection of your union with Christ. And just like in family, sometimes it's hardest to get along with the most, the people that should be the closest to us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. So this word for harmony here is, is this idea of think the same. And we'll unpack that in a minute, but I just want you to see in various places in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Agree with one another is that same idea of think the same. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with other, uh, one another. Same word. Philippians 2.2, 2. complete my joy by being of the same mind, uh, same idea, having the same love, being in the same accord, and of one mind. Also have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Very similar word, Philippians 2.5. At the end of Philippians, we have this one verse, Philippians 4.2, I entreat you, Odea, and I entreat syntechi not sure how you say the name, to agree in the Lord. Nothing else is said about these two characters. Don't know if they were fighting. Don't know if they just rubbed each other the wrong way. uh, Don't know if it was a serious issue. Don't know if it was just a a minor issue. But they go down in the scriptures as Paul saying, you two need to get along. How How would you like to meet them in heaven? I that would be so embarrassing that your name is in Scripture and this is how your name is. Nothing else is said of you, nothing good, nothing bad. You know, maybe they turned out to be great Christians. I, I, we have no idea. Uh, assuming they're believers, and I assume they are, we'll see them in heaven. We can ask them. But that's just got to be embarrassing. Like, that's how your name gets in Scripture. You know, can you imagine reading this letter? Publicly at the Church of Philippi. And he's reading along. He's seeing all this great stuff about, about you know, Christ and, and about our righteousnesses in him. And then we get to chapter 4. And, oh, here's a note for Judea, and Oh, hey, Paul says you guys need to agree in the Lord. Oh, man, if, if people didn't know about the fight before then, they certainly knew about it after that. The point is this. Harmony in the life of the body of Christ is crucial. It's who we're supposed to be that we get along, that we think alike. And and it, here, I, I want to read the words of Doug Moo, a commentator, because he says it so much better than me. Uh, but he's right. He says, We must not think that Paul prays that the two groups may come to the same opinion on these issues. Rather, asking he is asking God to give them, despite their differences of opinions, a common perspective and purpose. A common perspective and purpose. There might still be the believer that says, you know what, I'm only going to eat vegetables. And there might still be the believer that says, you know what, I have freedom in Christ. I'm going to eat whatever I want. And both of those opinions are valid because Paul has said, if your conscience convicts you, then then don't do it. Abstain by faith, he says, if your conscience doesn't convict you, go ahead and eat whatever you want. Eat it with faith. He doesn't say you have to be exactly the same on this issue. Now, there are a whole host of issues. Issues of doctrine where where we need to be in agreement. We need to say and believe the same things. Did Christ die on the cross? Did he rise from the dead? Did he substitute himself for us? Is he truly the son of God? And on and on and on we go. But in these issues, there is this freedom of liberty that we can have this same goal and mindset. And you know what? If you're only going to eat the vegetables or you're only going to eat the meat or you're going to drink a little wine or you're never going to touch wine. Guess what? We can be together in unity. In this common purpose, Romans 14, 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. This is not like a math problem. Think the same way. Two plus two always equals four, right? We all need to think the same way on math, right? It it just doesn't. Imagine if two engineers didn't think the same way and they design a bridge. What happens? Well, it falls apart. This is, this is more like art or, or staring at beauty, if you will. And so one person says, I love sunsets. Sunsets are beautiful. The hues are just wonderful. The setting sun as it's getting dark in the background. And The other person says, no, no, sunrises are way better. And I love the sunset. I love how it starts to light up the sky. And yeah, it has some of the same hues, but there's, there's just a greater brightness about it. The commonness that you have is you both love the sun. You both love seeing what God does in creation. One of you has a personal opinion that the sunset is better. The other has a personal opinion that the sunrise is better. You can still be of one mind in harmony. Now, this is a point from the English word harmony, not from anything in the Greek. But just think about how the word harmony works. When you think about harmony, you don't all sing the same notes. But you sing in unison. Hopefully, if we're good at harmonizing, (laughs) I'm not so good at harmonizing. So I guess I sing the melody then and the rest of you can harmonize. But isn't that how it should often work in the life of the church? Sometimes in the church, we exalt our hobby horses and we put them at the level of scripture. Let me give you a good example. And I speak from some personal experience, so I'm not knocking anyone here. Should children go to public school, to Christian school, or be homeschooled? Biblically, should children go to private school, Christian school, public school, or be homeschooled. And if you haven't, you will meet people that are dogmatic that there is only one biblical way to do it. I'll tell you this there are pros and cons for all three, there are strengths. But there are big dangers. And I speak of as one who was homeschooled for eight years. And I'm not talking about the people that mock homeschoolers and say, like, oh, you'll never get socialization. You know, that, that's just goofy. But, but there are some dangers to be aware of if you homeschool. And I was homeschooled. For four years, I went to public school. Believe me, there are dangers of going to public school. I went to a Christian college. So we'll count that as going to private Christian school. There are dangers in that. And we can we can have this idea in the church that being of one mind means, well, we need to be a church that pushes X. And really where we can be of one mind is we would all agree that children need to be raised in godliness. that children need to walk in the Lord. that children do need protection from the things in the world that are around them. But children also need to be prepared to enter a world with harmful things around them. And you can have personal conscience on what's the best way for your family. Just even by virtue of the fact that every kid is different. You might make different decisions with each one of your kids. And that's great. And Yet we can have the same unity of mindset. We can think the same way. There's so many other little examples in our our daily lives and in our Christian lives that we fight over these things and we divide over these things and we look down on people and judge them. You know, are you contemporary in your worship service or are you traditional? Um, Do you have small groups or do you do an evening service? And, you know, just on and on and on and on. We can disagree on some of those things and still have common unity. We need to learn as brothers and sisters in Christ to think this way. That, that let, our, let, our, let it be that our first reaction is not that gut reaction of pulling away or that gut reaction of, well, you're doing it wrong because you're not doing the way that I do it or the way that I was raised to do it. But that we might realize we have a common bond in the Lord. And in that sense, we can listen. This isn't to say that there aren't things that we need to take a stand on. This isn't to say that there aren't things that, that, are, that are dire issues that we should be firm on in our opinion. There are some things that go on in public schools that, you know what, even as a parent who has kids that go to public school, we need to be firm on and resist. And there may come a day and age down the road where, where some of the options that used to be available to us because the culture has changed so much, maybe they shouldn't be available to us let's remember this. Who are we pleasing? And who are we trying to build up? Notice the goal. That together we may with one voice glorify God and Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, the goal of Christian harmony is that we are all before the throne of God. We are all glorifying God. Why do we come to church on Sunday? Is it because we like a particular style? Is it because we like a particular this or that minor thing? Ooh, We like that they have chairs. We like that they do PowerPoint. Or is it because we want to glorify God? What's the purpose? When you criticize your brother and sister in Christ, are you glorifying God? Are you enabling them to glorify God or are you doing in such a way that they just get more bitter at you, more upset? Oh, I can't believe this person. They're so judgy. Focus on the Lord. Look at Christ's example, but look at the purpose of the church. The chief mission of the church is to glorify God. And enjoy God. And out of that we minister his word. And out of that we share the gospel. And out of that especially we build one another up. When was the last time you said something encouraging to someone in church? When was the last time you said something encouraging to someone in church who had previously rubbed you the wrong way? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from your word. We pray that you would instruct us and guide us and help us to be a body that that builds one another up, that that looks after each other in our needs, in our hurts, in our our desires to serve the Lord. Uh, We do pray that with one voice we might glorify uh, you, our great God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.